Welcome to Bizarre to Brutal, featuring true crimes and scandals that were reported in the hugely popular Victorian newspaper, The Illustrated Police News. What follows are the actual reports from that time. But first, a warning. The writers sometimes didn't hold back from giving the most intimate details of these events. But if you can stand it, you'll get a revealing insight into Victorian life and uncensored human nature. So let's walk back through the mists of time. Fourteenth of May, eighteen seventy. Serious charge against a dentist. On Tuesday at the Marlborough Street Police Court, Mr. Edwin Lowe, surgeon dentist, number six George Street, Hanover Square, was brought before Mr. Tyrewit, charged with having caused Mary Emily Harris to take certain noxious things, with intent to procure miscarriage. Mr. E. Lewis appeared for the prosecution. Mary Emily Harris, single woman living at 29 John Street North, said in November last she had occasion to consult the prisoner about her teeth. She called on him several times. An improper intimacy took place and she became enceinte. She discovered her condition in December last and informed the prisoner. He showed her an instrument which he wanted to use to procure miscarriage and said he had used it in other cases without danger. But she was afraid and declined. She called on him again to get some little pecuniary assistance and also wrote to him on the subject and in her letter she asked him to send her a mixture he had spoken to her about. He sent her a prescription for a mixture and a pill and told her to say it was for a surgeon when she went to a chemist to get it made up. She got the prescription made up at a chemist in South Street, who at first hesitated to make it up. She mentioned some name, and he made it up, labelling the mixture with care. She took the mixture and pills for two days, but feeling very ill, she became frightened and left off taking them. To questions from Mr Tyrewitt, complainant replied that she had written to the prisoner to tell him that the prescription he had given to her rendered him liable to a criminal prosecution. The prisoner called on her and said she knew he was in difficulties and she wanted to get him into a greater difficulty. The prisoner said he would not deny he had been intimate with the complainant, but he could prove that she was a prostitute and that if she was really with child, It was by a man named Williams. He admitted that he sent her the prescription at her request. The complainant said she did not know anyone of the name of Williams. Dr Owen Evans, MRCS, South Place, said if taken for a few days, the mixture would undoubtedly produce miscarriage. The prescription could not have been given for a proper object to a pregnant woman. He was only surprised that any respectable chemist should prepare it. He had seen the complainant 
and believed she was some months advanced in pregnancy. The complainant, on being recalled, denied that she had given the prisoner into custody in order to obtain money from him, or that she had threatened to give him into custody if he refused her money. Inspector Shaw, C Division, who took the prisoner into custody, stated that the complainant said to him, Now he is in custody, he will settle. On asking how much she expected, she made no reply. The conversation took place in a cab on the way to the court, and the prisoner was not present. Mr Lewis said he should, hereafter, show that the case had been got up by the complainant to obtain money from the prisoner. He should call no witnesses for the defence and only ask that the prisoner might be admitted to bail. Mr Tywit said the complainant might possibly have said something about settling, but there was the prisoner's own letter containing the prescription, and he should therefore commit him for trial and decline to allow bail. Twenty fifth of June, eighteen seventy. Exciting duel with broadswords. Francisco de Porto, a Cuban, and George Proud, an Englishman, recently quarrelled at New York, and the latter was spat upon. The combatants were determined to fight. Both were good swordsmen. Both had wrongs. The Cuban to avenge a slander on his countrymen his opponent to wipe out the stain that the defiant expectoration of de Porto had inflicted. All this occurred uptown, near the house of a common friend, and a fashionable one at that, in West 19th Street. To that house, then, the parties, accompanied by their seconds, on Sunday night repaired. There was no noise, no unusual sound to disturb the quietude of the place. The preparations were made in silence, and the hour of two o'clock was awaited with anxiety. The edges of the keen blades were carefully examined, and, for a lengthened period, scarcely a word was spoken. Ding dong! It was two o'clock. In the spacious back parlour of the house in question, the parties assembled ere the echo of the chimes had died out. Both combatants stripped for the contest. The seconds now and then whispered something to those about to engage. Only a half-dozen persons were present, each one of whom was thrilled by a nervous excitement. All the arrangements having been completed, the competents announced their readiness to proceed. A dead silence ensued, while an ashy paleness seemed to be the prevalent complexion of every man in the room. The word was given, and the duelists crossed swords, and having taken three paces backwards, the fight commenced. At first, a slight timidity was apparent on both sides, not so much timidity, perhaps, as the nervous expectation incident to the opening of the encounter. Finally, after some little hesitation, de Porto advanced, proud, meanwhile, on the alert to receive him. The scene was exciting. 
All at once, the few spectators were startled by a sudden cut made by Proud at the head of his opponent, who, however, deftly parried and retired a pace or two. Up to the present, both had observed a comparatively serene demeanour, but it was evident the duel could not be a prolonged one, each being bent on deadly strife. Having again crossed, great skill was displayed by both, their eyes flashing with fire and endeavouring, as it were, to penetrate each other's intent. Admirable swordsmanship was displayed, the cuts being rapid, well-directed and parried with precision. Up to the present, which was about five minutes from the commencement, De Porto had escaped with a slight scratch on the chest, proud being unharmed, when suddenly De Porto, offering a tempting chance, proud advanced upon him and inflicted a diagonal cut upon the right thigh. It was a fatal move for Proud, for no sooner had he leaned forward to make the cut than, with lightning-like rapidity, De Porto, following up the contrafilio, gashed his opponent on the right shoulder, causing a wound some five inches in length and about one and a half inches in depth. His sword arm was disabled. The duel was over. Proud dropped his blade, exclaiming, Enough for today. You will give me my revenge another time. To which De Porto replied, I am always at your disposition. Subsequently, the party shook hands and the wounds were examined. That inflicted on De Porto, though some eight inches in length, was scarcely a quarter of an inch in depth. While Proud's was of a serious character, the blood streaming from it in profusion. He was immediately conveyed to his residence in Brooklyn, where the proper assistance was procured. Twenty fifth of June, eighteen seventy. Death through tight lacing. It would be impossible to form anything like an accurate estimate of the thousands of persons who have fallen victims to the odious fashion of tight lacing. A melancholy instance of this baneful practice occurred in Newtown on Saturday last. Dorothea, the eldest daughter of Vincent Posselwaite Esquire, a highly respectable and wealthy merchant of Newtown, died suddenly at a ball given in her father's house. While dancing with a young gentleman to whom she was engaged, she was observed by her partner to turn pale and to gasp spasmodically for breath. She tottered for a few brief seconds and then fell. The general impression was that she had fainted. Restoratives were applied without producing the desired effect. A doctor was sent for who, upon examining the patient, pronounced the ill-fated young lady to be dead. The consternation of the family and guests may be readily imagined, which was not a little enhanced by the medical gentleman declaring that Miss Posselwaite had died from no other cause than tight lacing. The heart's action 
had been impeded. The excitement and exertion was, under the circumstances, too great a strain upon the system, and hence sudden death. twenty fifth of june eighteen seventy awful tragedy in the city a determined attempt was made on monday morning by a husband to murder his wife and afterwards to destroy his own life the circumstances that brought about this dreadful affair are of the most distressing character the wretched persons both of whom are now lying at st bartholomew's hospital in a very precarious condition, lived in one room in Bridgewater Gardens, Barbican, one of the poorest localities within the city gates. John Duke, the husband, 45 years of age, is by trade a cigar maker. He has five children. The wife, aged 39, is in the last stage of consumption, her complaint having been seriously aggravated from the want of food. Duke is said to be a highly respectable man, a statement that is strengthened from the fact of his having held but two situations after he completed his apprenticeship, one for 15 years, the other for 12 years. Owing, however, to the depreciation of his trade and the large number of hands out of employment consequent upon the increasing importation of foreign cigars, Duke was discharged from a situation he had held for upwards of 12 years, taking with him an excellent character. But that, unfortunately, failed to procure him other employment, and the poor fellow and his helpless wife have been half-starved during the last six months. It appears that he resorted to every probable and possible means to earn something like an existence, but was totally unsuccessful. His invalided wife earned a few pence a week by washing, which, together with the broken food that was occasionally given to them by the lady who employed his daughter as a domestic servant, enabled them to struggle on. They, however, became very emaciated, and fearing that their strength would entirely fail them, and that they would have to die literally of starvation, the unfortunate man, in a fit of desperation and despondency, yesterday morning seized a razor after passing a wretched night and inflicted a wound on his wife's throat that will, in all probability, prove fatal. He afterwards cut his own throat, but not to so great an extent. They were both removed to St Bartholomew's Hospital, where their wounds were dressed and where, as already stated, they are both lying in a very hopeless condition. The terrible affair necessarily created much consternation and sympathy in the neighbourhood. Second of July, eighteen seventy. 
another case of dressing in women's clothes. At the Guildhall Police Court on Tuesday, Walter Thurston, who gave a false address, was charged before Sir Thomas Gabriel with being dressed in women's clothes in Hoburn, supposed for an unlawful purpose. Albert Hanks, 318, said that the previous night, about 12 o'clock, he saw the prisoner and three other young men in company together in Hoburn, and from their conduct, he followed them to the top of Southampton buildings. The prisoner was dressed in female attire, and the conduct of the whole party was so strange that he stopped them. He then found that the prisoner was a man in woman's clothes. He had on a black jacket, a brown skirt and a bonnet and fall. He had watched the prisoner and his companions for some time before he took them into custody. When he took him to the station house, he had a suit of men's clothes without the coat under the female clothing. He gave a false address. At first, he said he lived in Southampton buildings, and then he gave 66 Linton Road, Bermondsey, where his brother told witness that he lived at a coffee shop in Drury Lane. Witness had found that one of the men who was with him was Foreman, and another was Carmen at the place where the prisoner worked. At the station house, one of the men who was with the prisoner put his arm around his neck and kissed him in a most affectionate manner. At this statement, the prisoner burst out laughing when Sir Thomas Gabriel said he need not laugh at it for he would find it was no laughing matter before he had done with him. George Gregg, 323, said he was with Hanks when he took the prisoner into custody. He asked him how he came with that dress in the street and he said he only did it for a lark and the other young men said the same thing. Alfred Walden was called for the defence and said that he and the prisoner were employed at Mr Whitehead's 23 Drury Lane Oil and Colour Man and he lived at 34 Southampton Buildings. The previous day, he invited a few friends to spend the evening with him when the prisoner sang a song in character and they dressed him up in women's clothes. After the song, they bet him sixpence that he would not go into the street in that dress, and he accepted the bet. They went and spent the sixpence at a public house, and in returning, he was taken into custody. Sir Thomas Gabriel then remanded the prisoner for inquiries. been listening to Bizarre to Brutal. I'm Mark Capel. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to support this podcast, climb into your handsome cab and head over to bizarretobrutal.com to find out more. See you next time.